He was only 14. His cousins called him Bobo. He was a sharp dresser. He had a vibrant smile and he loved a good joke. He loved to play pranks on people. And his friend said that he always sought out the spotlight. He had polio when he was younger and it left him with a stutter. His mother taught him to speak slowly and sometimes whistle softly before he spoke a word beginning with the letter B. It seemed to help with the stutter. He was, in most respects, a normal kid. Maybe a little boisterous, a little braggadocious, but a normal teenager. Five feet, four inches tall and 150 pounds with a laugh that carried through the air. A life full of promise that was viciously, horrifically cut short in a shed by a dirt road near the Tallahatchie River in Mississippi. He was only 14. Mix yourself a tall Mississippi punch and brace yourself as we and our guests, Travis Brown and Herman Watson, discuss the heartbreaking tale of the lynching of Emmett Till. Emmett was born in Chicago in 1941. His mother, Mamie Carthen, was born in Webb, Mississippi. But when she was two years old, her family moved to Argo City, Illinois, near Chicago. So many blacks from Mississippi moved there, it was known around town as Little Mississippi. His father was Lewis Till. They divorced and Mamie married Pink Bradley and moved to Detroit. Emmett didn't want to leave Chicago, so he stayed there with his grandmother. Mamie and Pink separated, and Mamie moved back to Chicago. In 1955, Mamie's uncle Mose Wright visited her from Mississippi. He told Emmett stories about fishing and hunting in the Delta. Mamie had planned to take Emmett on vacation to visit relatives in Nebraska, but he begged her to let him go back to Mississippi with Uncle Mose and visit his cousin. Mamie finally relented, but before they left, she talked to Emmett about what life in the South was like. She told him it was different from Chicago and not to cross white people. Emmett said he understood. But really, how could he understand? He attended an integrated school in Chicago. He could go into some stores and drink from the same water fountains as white kids. There was prejudice and racism, of course, but nothing like Mississippi. In Mississippi, a black man could be murdered for simply talking to a white woman. There had been 500 lynchings in Mississippi since 1882 and over 3,000 throughout the South. Things got even worse in 1954 after the Supreme Court outlawed school segregation in Brown versus Board of Education. The Klan and other racist groups, such as the White Citizens Council, saw this as an opportunity to wreak havoc as they warned against intermarriage. Just a week before Emmett's visit, an activist, Lamar Smith, was trying to encourage blacks to register to vote. He was shot and killed on the courthouse steps. Three white men were arrested, but the charges were later dropped. This was the environment Emmett was entering in August of 1955. His great uncle Mose was a sharecropper and a part-time preacher. They lived in the small town of Money, Mississippi. On a Sunday morning while Mose was preaching, Emmett and his cousin Curtis Jones skipped church with some other boys. They went to town. Some of the boys were playing checkers on the sidewalk while some decided to go to Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market to buy some candy. The store was owned by 24-year-old Roy Bryant and his 21-year-old wife, Carolyn. What happened next is disputed. According to Curtis Jones, Emmett showed the boys a picture of his integrated class from Chicago and pointed out that he was friends with a lot of the white kids. He pulled a picture out of his wallet of a white girl and said it was his girlfriend. 
It may have just been one of those pictures that comes with a wallet when you buy it. But according to Curtis, some of the other boys didn't believe him and dared Emmett to go into the store and talk to Carolyn Bryant. Other kids who were there claimed this never happened. They claimed Emmett never pulled out a picture and no one dared him to go into the store. Years later, Curtis recanted his story and apologized to Emmett's mother, saying the white men around town told him to say that. We do know that Emmett went into the store. According to Carolyn Bryant, he whistled at her and said, how about a date, baby? Then he grabbed her wrist and followed her around the counter to the cash register and put his hand around her waist and told her not to worry. He'd been with white women before. Carolyn ran out of the store to her car to get a gun. The boy saw this and grabbed Emmett and ran away. Decades later, a reporter interviewed Carolyn Bryant, and she said that Emmett never did grab her and that she regretted saying it. She said that boy didn't deserve what happened to him. Roy Bryant was out of town that day. When he got back, Carolyn was afraid to tell him about the incident, but enough people around town had heard about it and word eventually got back to him. Roy and his half-brother, J.W. Milan, asked around and eventually discovered Emmett's identity. Around midnight, they showed up at Mose Wright's house and demanded the boy who had been talking be brought out. Mose's wife offered them money, but they refused to leave. Mose pleaded with them to leave Emmett alone, saying he wasn't from there. He was from up north, and he didn't understand. How old are you, preacher? Milam asked. 64, Mose replied. Well, if you want to see 65, don't tell anybody. As they took Emmett to the car, Mrs. Wright heard someone ask, is this the boy? She heard someone say yes. Later, they asked if it was a man or a woman's voice. She said she couldn't say for sure, but it sounded lighter than a man's voice. They went to the car and got a couple of men who worked for Milan. They put Emmett in the car and pistol whipped him. They took him to a shed and began to beat him some more. Brian said they originally intended to beat him and throw him in the river just to scare him. But when they were hitting him and torturing him, Emmett called them bastards, said he was as good as they were, and that he'd been with white women before. Later, J.W. Milam told Look Magazine, what else could I do? He thought he was as good as any white man. He shot Emmett in the head. He was only 14. The men went to a cotton gin and found a 70-pound fan. They stripped Emmett naked, burned his clothes, and tied his body to the fan with barbed wire and dumped it in the Tallahatchie River. A few days later, some boys who were fishing discovered it. The police called Mose Wright to identify the body. His face had been beaten beyond recognition and was bloated from being in the water. The only way to identify the body was by the ring Emmett was wearing. It had the initials LT and was inscribed August 1943. An undertaker embalmed the body and was preparing it for burial in a pine box. Emmett's mother enlisted the help of local politicians and finally had Emmett's body shipped back to Chicago. She didn't even recognize him. By this time, the wire services had picked up the story, and Mamie insisted on an open casket with a glass top at the funeral so people could see what the murderers had done to Emmett. Jet Magazine and other black publications ran the horrific pictures. They shocked the nation. Initially, authorities in Mississippi said they were outraged that they didn't condone such brutality. Bryant and Milam were arrested. The sheriff said the case against them was pretty good. As the case gained more publicity in the North, and as civil rights groups began to speak out, public opinion in Mississippi changed. The sheriff, who two weeks before said the case against Bryant and Milam was pretty good, now said that he doubted that the body dragged down of the river was even Emmett Till. He said he thought Emmett was alive and well back in Chicago. The two men were indicted for murder, and the trial was held in a segregated courtroom. Blacks were forced to sit in the balcony. 
The all-male jury was allowed to drink beer in the jury box, and many of the jurors carried handguns on their hips. At the trial, the county coroner said he couldn't identify the body, but he thought that it was the body of a white person and that it had been in the water much too long for it to be Emmett Till, considering when he had disappeared. Mose Wright testified that Milam was one of the men who took Emmett. He stood up and pointed directly at Milam and said, there he is. A journalist later said it was an historic moment filled with electricity. A black man testifying against a white man in open court in Mississippi. The jury deliberated for 67 minutes before returning a verdict of not guilty. It wouldn't have taken that long, one of them said, if we hadn't stopped to drink pop. Some of the jurors later said that they knew Bryant and Milam were guilty, but since the only punishments available for murder were death or life imprisonment, they voted to acquit. Life in prison was much too harsh for a white man killing a black person, they said. After the trial, Look Magazine paid Bryant and Milam between three and $4,000 to tell their story. Because of double jeopardy, they couldn't be tried again, so they admitted what they had done. Milam said he didn't think they did anything wrong. To let a black person say they were as good as a white person was unthinkable. So they killed Emmett to send a message. After the Look article disappeared, Bryant and Milam were ostracized. They eventually moved away and their businesses were boycotted and they went bankrupt. Their health failed. Before his death from cancer in 1992, Roy Bryant said that Emmett Till had ruined his life. Emmett Till is dead, he said. I don't know why he can't stay dead. Mamie, Emmett's mother, earned her teaching degree and spent the rest of her life working for racial justice. The following year, Rosa Parks, a domestic in Birmingham, Alabama, heard a young preacher from Georgia named Martin Luther King Jr. tell Emmett Till's story at a civil rights demonstration. Later, she was riding a bus home from work, and when the white bus driver told her to get up so a white person could sit down, she said she was about to comply, but then thought of Emmett Till being dragged down to the river, and she refused. The rest, as they say, is history. The next year, Congress, spurred by Emmett's story, passed the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the first civil rights law passed since Reconstruction. It allowed the Department of Justice to intervene in local cases where someone's individual civil rights had been compromised. Today, there are memorials to Emmett Till throughout Mississippi. Emmett has been called a sacrificial lamb for the civil rights movement the rock upon which the quest for racial justice was founded. Yes, but let's never forget, he was only 14. Wow, thank you, Dad. That was really great. Horrible, but great story for us to discuss today. All right, so I'm going to get into uh, the trends of the crime and this is the part of our show where I tell you about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of our crime. And since we've had a couple episodes take place in the 50s, uh, this section is going to be short today. I also want to give us time to discuss the Emmett Till lynching with our guests. Uh, so Emmett Till, as we know, was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago. So he didn't quite dress like the Southern men in Mississippi. He is pictured with fedoras and uh, button-up shirts, wide-leg trousers, and he likely wore jeans while he was dressed down. Bryant and Millam were working-class men in the South. They likely wore jeans and button-downs. And Carolyn Bryant, in photos, she looks like your classic young woman in the 50s. She wore circle skirts and pearl necklaces, uh, red lipstick. She was young, and um, yeah, she just looked like your classic 50s woman in the classic 50s fashion. Now we are going to get into our discussion with uh, Travis and Herman, and they are from the podcast Black in the Middle, which you can listen to wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm going to have them introduce themselves 
and tell us about their show before we get started. Travis, if you want to start. All right. Well, um, hello, I'm Travis Brown, and I am one of the three co-hosts of the show Black in the Middle podcast. I am a HR professional uh, that's been in human resources for over 15 years, and I've been friends with my two co-hosts for um, almost 30 years, you know, so we go back to when we were kids um, from elementary school and high school, and so um, there's just kind of a bond there. I just have a real interest in talking about, you know, all things cultural, you know, all things cultural, whether it's you know, black history or whether it's pop culture or whatever. And so I'm just super excited to be a part of this um, and to be able to join in this experience with my good friend, Herman Watson. All right. And I am Herman Watson. I co-host Black in the Middle with uh, Travis. As far as work, uh, I'm a marketing strategist and sales director for a big data company. Super excited to be here today. Uh, super excited to discuss this Emmett Till conversation that has really impacted, I know, both me and Travis's lives uh, in, a, in a really interesting way. Me having lived in the South for nearly a decade in my 20s. So I'm really excited to jump in. And as far as our podcast, you know, middle age, middle of the map, middle America is kind of where our discussion lives. And there's not a lot of voices that kind of share our story, but there are a lot of people in our bubble. So thank you guys. We're really excited to have you here and to discuss this case with us. Um, I wanted to start hearing about everyone's first experience of the Emmett Till case. Um, I'm sure I learned about it in school, but sadly I, I didn't have to remember it. Um, and it didn't have to make a huge impact on me because I'm a white person living in who was from Olathe, Kansas, you know, predominantly white uh, neighborhood, predominantly white schools. And I'm embarrassed to say that I, it didn't impact my life. And that's due to my privilege, I'm sure. Um, so that's why I, I want to hear everyone else's first encounter with the case and how it has shaped you um, as my dad being a white man and uh, you too. Um, so dad, if you want to go and then we'll talk to our guests. Well, Macy, I'm I'm kind of like you. I I grew up in uh, the Texas Panhandle, so I've got you know some experience with Southern living as well as um, I believe Herman said he did. I probably had my first exposure to Emmett Till's life and lynching in college when we were studying part of the civil rights movement. Um, I'm sure back in Downhart, Texas, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that got a lot of attention back then. But you know, just a horrific time in our nation's um, history. All right, now I'm going to open the floor to Herman and Travis. Whoever wants to start, uh, go ahead. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. So it's really interesting because you know the Emmett Till story lives. It's a part of the story that black men have with their parents so early on. So for me, it would have been around six or seven years old, uh, probably around the time Mississippi Burning came out, which was about um, the, the, civil, the freedom riders that came to Mississippi. Um, but in framing that question, you just learn a lot about the awareness that you have to have in a nation that might not trust or believe you and the outcomes that can happen when crossing boundaries. Um, with this group of people that you don't know. There's, you know, great white people that are embracing and growing up in the suburbs of Kansas City, like it was fine. But at the same time, my parents also kept me out of the school district and the suburb I live in because of racial inequities and stories that were happening that they just were like, you know, we'll just keep him isolated. Um, yeah, so it's just something that lives early on. Fun fact, uh, me and Emmett Till actually share the same birthday, July 25th, 40 years apart. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, um, I was watching some videos and on 60 Minutes, I can't remember who said it, but someone said that, um, oh, it was the filmmaker, Keith Beauchamp, said that everyone remembers the first time they saw the photo of Till's tortured body. Um, like I said, I, I don't, but I, as they were talking about that, I thought, yeah, that makes sense that that would have been a topic of conversation for young black men and women um, just having to survive in in this nation that is has become systematically racist and 
us white people, we don't have that experience. We um, didn't have to go through that. So Travis, how about you? Yeah, I'm similar to Herman in the fact that I, I remember this from being a child. I can't tell you exactly when, but I can tell you I was probably about the same age. I was probably about six or seven. And, um, you know, Herman and I are 80s babies. So when you're talking about the 80s, you, you're, you're much closer removed to the incident. And so there was a lot of cultural preaching that was going on, even though as America was trending a certain way. There was still a lot of just talk uh, talk about it either at home or at church. And then you're in school and school, you know, every February, this subject comes up with right. Black History Month. Um, so I can remember having these discussions and I can remember the exposure to this case at a very, very young age. And I think the thing that just resonates to me or resonated with me was he was a boy. You know, I was a boy and he was... 14. I wasn't quite that old, but you see yourself in other kids. And I remember, um, I remember hearing that case and just having the reinforcement conversations at home about it. Um, and, and really, really understanding that the civil rights movement kind of launched with this case. And just to add to that. So the other thing is the, the age of our parents. So, you know, my dad was like 20 in 1964. So he lived through some of that segregation. And my mom went to school with Linda Brown, Brown versus the Board of Education. So all of these stories are like right there in our in our worlds. Like they're we're just not that far removed that they, you know, they just their conversations that that happen often and all uh, in an, the ability to protect our ourselves. Right. Yeah. It's really not that long ago. It kind of feels like maybe it was and thinking of a world where people can do that to anyone, let alone a 14-year-old boy, seems like, oh, that's ancient, but it's 70 years ago. You know, people are alive who lived through things like that. So um, it's very important to continue talking about it and um, talking about those experiences. Well, I grew up in that little town in the Texas panhandle, and um, I was born in 1956, so, you know, one year after after, uh, Emmett's death. And I remember my great aunt was a dishwasher at the Cattleman's Cafe in that town. She didn't drive, so my grandmother would go pick her up from work when her shift was over in mid-afternoon. And I remember one day, it just struck me, every day we went to pick her up, I'd see a line of Black people at the back door getting food. And I asked my grandmother one day, "Why, why don't they go in the front door? Why don't they come in and sit down like we do? And she just said, well, we don't do that here. And that was really my first exposure, even though I think I was probably five or six years old. But man, this doesn't seem right for some reason to me, even back then. And uh, I remember years later when Dr. King was assassinated and we were, we were I was in sixth grade and the morning after it happened, sixth grade teacher was talking about it. And I still remember turning my head to the left and um one of the girls in class, and I, I still remember her name, had a big smile on her face and said, well, he just got what he deserved. And I thought, again, that's in my lifetime. Um, just a, a sad, yeah, sad time. You know, it's just so interesting because I'm like, that has been the Black experience yeah. for, you know, just so many. So it's like when in this fight for inclusion and equality, the one thing that reigns supreme is this, and it's really interesting because that J.W. Milam said it in, what, 1956, and that was keeping Black people in their place. Mm-hmm. And in this American experiment, so many people feel the same way then, today, 100 years before then. And so, you know, it really is collectively coming together to think through, well, how do we get to this level of, of empathy and an understanding that will actually move us into the next stage of this American experiment. Yeah. Right. It's interesting because I think as kids, you know, obviously I was raised by my dad and my mom. And I think um, as kids, you don't like things like that don't make sense. Like everyone is a person. Um, so what they look different than me, like why would these people have to do this when these people get to do this? Like, like you were saying, Dad, it it didn't it doesn't make sense, and um, it's 
interesting to go through life and kind of see where that shift happens in people. I definitely think it's nature versus nurture because our innocent childlike brains obviously don't see the um, injustice. So, all right, let's get into the jury. My dad was an attorney forever. Dad, from a law perspective, is there a reason besides this being in Mississippi in 1955 that this all-white jury was allowed? Or is that the only reason? No, it happens today. Okay, that was my question. It, it happens today. Um, it's not supposed to happen today, but, you know, anytime a, a jury is chosen, uh, you know, each attorney wants a, a favorable jury. And we, we, we hear stories all the time, even today, of, of prosecutors um, using what are called preemptory challenges to exclude black people from juries where there's a black defendant. Dallas, Texas was, was infamous for this just you know, probably 10 years ago. You know, they, they found manuals down there. There were lawsuits, federal lawsuits, and they, they actually found manuals in the district attorney's office saying how to exclude people from juries without running afoul of the law, as it were. So, no, this is, uh, you know, we, we like to say, well, we've come a long way, and I, I suppose we have, but, uh, you know, there's a long way to go. Isn't no, it? it's not just because it was Mississippi. It's because <sighs> I, I don't even have the words to it's, say. It's the, it's the times, and it's the Jim Crow South. And, you know, you're talking about um, supposed to be a jury of your peers. Well that really the only way a black person was allowed in the courtroom was to either be a defendant or to support a defendant. And they had to stand along the wall in order to do so and not even be allowed to sit down. It's the Jim Crow South. And that is why we had the fight that we had. And now it's still a, a struggle. Um, it's still, like he said, he, he, Mike, you hit it right on the head. It's about the agenda and putting yeah. forth a group of people who can help you accomplish your goal, especially if you're the DA, and that is to convict those for your success rate, not necessarily for absolutely. what's factual and actual. That's absolutely right. And just to add to that, it's also so like even if you took the Jim Crow laws and if you took out everything and just made it purely based on counties, well, that's where you see the America that is super hyper segregated. So even when you break down that, and the, the amount of black people, so like in the 50s, America was like 10% black. Today, we're like 13. So even if it was just sheer numbers, you're still going to, all things being equal, probably not end up with a black person in the jury. And then when you have the rules, they're like, well, we want the jurors that we want. That person is not one of them. You know, like, so it's a, I think it's a function of society and segregation or resegregation-ish type things, but also the laws and getting convictions. And then you have for-profit prisons. So we need to keep those full. So, you know, it's just a cyclical nature of, of kind of money at one end and power at the other. Yeah. What's the process of getting a new jury? When did that come about? Because I know in Bernie, in the episode we did on Bernie, or he moved towns because it was biased because they all loved Bernie. So they wanted to move it to a different town. How does that work? Was that a thing back then? Yeah. I mean, it's always been a thing. It's called a change of venue. I mean, if, if you can show it's usually raised by the defense. Okay. I mean, in Bernie, the prosecution raised it, which was, which was unique, but you know, the defense would try to say my client is, is so would be so prejudiced by the, people in this town, we can't get a fair trial. So we need to move the trial to another county. Uh, but it's, it's up to the judge. It's a, it's a judicial, yeah. Strictly up to the judge. It's, it's the judge's discretion. So um, that's then, where the problem comes in usually. And, and then you're looking at, and like the case of Emmett Till, you're looking at the quality of defense attorney as well. Yeah. You're looking at people who don't have a ton of money like Mr. Wright or like uh, Ms. Till. So they're just not going to have the resources. In today's America, we call it a public defender. And I don't know if that was what they had back in the day, but I know that in order to help cases like this, the NAACP later started to get involved. And Thurgood Marshall was a big proponent of that, you know, going from town to town and fighting these cases. But in this particular case, 
the defense was obviously very, very weak. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah, in this case, uh, a number of attorneys uh, refused to defend um, Milam and uh, I lost the other guy's name. Brian. Brian. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, I think it was a, a law firm from one of the larger towns in Mississippi, a rather prominent law firm, uh, came in and defended him pro bono, <laughs> defended them pro bono. In other words, they didn't charge anything. So, you know, they uh, they had they had decent attorneys and uh, mm-hmm. just again, one of the one of the complaints one of the jurors had, they, they said, well, when he, when Emmett's mother got on the stand, she didn't cry enough. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that I'm sure that the county attorney or the district attorney, whatever they called him in Mississippi, wasn't wasn't excited about even trying to get a conviction. As as you guys said, it was uh, the deck was stacked. And it's it's interesting because the deck is is not only stacked based around race, but it's also stacked based around uh, the finances it takes to push a different case. Everybody knows that if you have enough money, you can push a case to, to take three, five years, you know. You can push it out or you can get somebody to concede. And so when you're black and when there's this like huge wealth gap, it's like you're conceding day one because you don't have, you know, the finances to push for maybe what's fair or to try to say you have a mistrial or whatever the the mechanisms are for to extend a trial. You just have to take it. And we saw it then and we still see it today. It's super unfortunate. Well, and with Mamie, like, the, she was also up against her gender because that's something women hear now. I mean, in a in a murder trial of or if someone has died, like either they cry too much and it's fake, or they don't cry enough and they're not sad enough. So I mean, just a lot of prejudices in in this case, as we know. I'd, I'd like to ask uh, Travis and Herman if your parents ever talked to you when you were younger about sundown towns. Yeah. Go ahead, Herman. Oh, so not specifically about sundown towns. I think that like some of the Jim Crow laws, like we didn't know the specifics around, but we were spoken to in a way of just, you know, being aware of, I think it's, it, it starts with just being aware of your surroundings and just know that, you know, people aren't going to like you. People can make choices around you um, that can affect your life or death. And there might not be any repercussions to those kind of actions. But as far as like the sundown town specifically, I would say no. Yeah. Re- reason I ask is I was uh, reading, reading a book about the Dust Bowl. And the place where I grew up was the center of the Dust Bowl. And, and in that, they talked about it back then my hometown was a sundown town right if uh if a black person was caught there after sundown they sent them to jail and uh one in particular and we could i could get the article from the paper from back in the 1930s where they took a guy to jail and uh didn't charge him they charge him with loitering or vagrancy or something and uh the judge would come in and and tell him uh tap dance for me mm. And, you know, if he didn't, you know, and basically, well, I didn't like that. Go back to jail and practice and come back next week. And I'm just sad that that's part of my heritage, really. That's so interesting. I think for for me, it was more like, you better be in this house before the streetlights come on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, here, I mean, I live in Olathe, Kansas, uh, you know, and we have this app on our phone called, it's a neighborhood app. You know, you can buy and sell stuff, but it seems like about once a week, somebody posts an app that says, I saw an African-American man walking down the street today looking at houses. <laughs> you know, well, you know what's going, you know what they're saying. Right. You know, and that, I made so some that, posts. That's the, so that is uh, the black in the middle conversation. Yep. Yep. It is being one of the few in areas that you can afford to be in that you belong in, that you have stature in, but a community surrounding you that is still like, yeah, but I just, am not sure. Or like, you know, you don't know all your neighbors. So if you move in somewhere and it's like, well, I just saw a black guy for the first time drive, you know? So we talk about our experiences growing up uh, in one of the suburbs of Kansas city. And I'm like, I talk about driving a crappy car and getting pulled over every Friday night after football games in my neighborhood. Cause I grew up in a nice uh, neighborhood. My father is a physician and, 
life is fine for me, but you never escape those things. So, well, we had a crappy car when I right after we got married, and we were coming back from KCK one night on 18th Street, and I got pulled over, and the officer came to the car. He had his flashlight. I had the window rolled down. He put the flashlight. He saw my wife and me, and he said. Oh, you two are all right. Go ahead. Right. You know, I know if I would have been black, I'd have been there till midnight, probably, and then hauled hauled off somewhere. So, you know, when people tell me white privilege is is a myth, I think, well, no, we've all experienced that. And, and right. Yeah. And one of my things is that you know we worked in branding, and I'm like, I really just wish it would have been called the white standard or the like the you know because the privilege piece of that conversation. A lot of people, it doesn't resonate with because it makes it seem like you got something for free. But if people could understand that the standard of how you're treated is different, like your baseline zero, it's just a standard, and recognize that Black people are 25 steps below that, mm-hmm. then maybe more people would resonate. They're like, privilege? Well, I'm poor and I've worked hard my entire life. And I'm like, you know. Right. It's about It's about the fact that your skin was never an issue with how you were treated or with those obstacles that you face. Right. Whereas with uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, that is an automatic issue a lot of the time in America. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I I just recently started watching Lovecraft Country on HBO. Have you guys seen that? I just started to get into episode one, and I'm so like eager. I just don't. <laughs> I can only try to watch it like after everybody's asleep. I know. <laughs> it's very scary and very weird. Uh, but that is the show that I. I guess, rem- I, again, I probably learned about Sundown Towns, but that show really uh, brought it back into my forefront of the of my mind. And I said to my parents, we were in the car and I said, I was telling them about the show. And I was like, did you know that, you know, in the 50s, white policemen would like chase black people out of the town? And they're like, oh, yeah, Macy, that's been around forever. And I was like, I had no idea. And you know, again, that just shows like I didn't have to know about this stuff. So, yeah. And it's so weird because what was happening then in that way that held people back, which would be like, you get to take, you get taken to jail, hypothetically, you get convicted of something, then you're black with a rap sheet mm-hmm. just based on being black and existing. And then fast forward to today, it's not that much different when it comes to like, I mean, I've never done crack, but when crack was <laughs> policed, like how it was, it's like you have all these crack felons and all these black people that can't get jobs or vote, which is kind of the what exactly J.W. Milam wanted back then. He didn't want black people to vote like so many others. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we kind of were getting into this, but I want to talk about the fact that Mamie wanted Emmett's uh, body on display and how that correlates to how the smartphones in all of our pockets are now showing everyone what life is like uh for black people and people of color like the george floyd that getting caught on video um whether the amy cooper and christian cooper in central park like that's stuff that highly affected me as a young adult because you know i i was born in the 90s so we didn't have these smartphones when i was little and so this was my first time really seeing all of this from an from a raw unedited like perspective, I guess. So I, I want to talk about that. Anyone it's, have- it's the most powerful statement she could have made because mm-hmm. nothing affects us like a visual. And when we hear tales, when we hear stories, our imagination wanders, but it's really just kind of left at that. Like you hear somebody do something bad, you're just like, oh, that sounds terrible. But when you see it and that image gets burned in your head, and when you see that mutilated body and it makes the front page of papers from uh, all across America in the Tokyo and the Europe. Um, that is a, a very real thing. And it puts a stigma on the state of Mississippi and even America, right? So it then gets huge traction and huge action. And it still reigns prevalent today, like you talked about. You know, If we heard about George Floyd, it would be very different than the visual that we saw and the audio that went with it. Right. Um, there are so many cases I can point to in things against domestic violence or things against, you know, um, police brutality that, that come with p- 
pictures that now make us say, okay, this has to change because I can see it, I can feel it, and I can absorb it. And for her to do that and to share her pain with the nation helps a nation rise up and it helps us take the mentality to say, and it's not just black people, it was some, it was white people as well, but it, it makes people say, things must change. This cannot be our America. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, the civil rights movement, you know, led by Dr. King and several others, definitely gets a lot of notoriety, but you talked about different legislation that was passed, and that's on the heels of this. And so that tells you that that picture impacted more than just black people. Yeah. And, and thank goodness for Jet Magazine. Thank goodness for Jet Magazine. I've, I've got a feeling if, if Jet Magazine hadn't published that picture, it might not have ever seen the light of day. Mm-hmm. And the, quite frankly, and I'm, I'm probably going to steal Herman's thunder here, but <laughs> if, if things are to change, white people have to be on board. Like yeah. black people just can't be up here saying that this is, this is, uh, this is wrong and there needs to be change. Like in order for things to change, we have to be inclusive in nature and white people have to be on board and visuals are the best way for the people to connect with it. And actually what I was going to add was also the power of an individual story is way stickier than a broader problem. So when you saw that one 14 year old being brutalized in that way, everybody can associate what I need to know more. I'm interested in how this could happen. But when it's something bigger, so like if you talk about the story of black history as a whole with like hundreds of lynchings or thousands of lynchings, like it's very abstract. So the power of what um, of what uh, Mamie did at the time was like this one case could hopefully springboard, you know, an outcome that is worthwhile that will drive us forward, which took a decade, but it helped get there. So when you see that picture and then you talk about the different measurables and variables that you talked about, Mike, you see a mutilated body. And then you couple that with the fact that he's 14 years old. Mm-hmm. He's five foot four, 150 pounds, and he's 14 years old. And then you look at that mutilated body. This is a boy against two grown men. Like that is a visual that is just staggering. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes you feel some type of way. I mean, just black, brown, white you know, whatever. It, it just makes you feel some type of way because you understand, well, except for those jury members, you understand that this was a great injustice. Yeah. I mean, everyone, like Herman was saying, everyone knows a 14-year-old and yeah, there's just no way that this can be justified. For me, like I right now, I'm looking at a five foot, four inch, 140 pound boy who's 12. And like, so when you're reading that, Mike, like, I'm trying not to look out the corner of my eye, but I'm feeling every bit of it because that's him. Like that is same size kid. And it's, it's just, it's, it just gives you chills. Yeah. yeah. On another video I watched, it was um, Oprah's best friend, Gail. I can't think of her last name, but she was, in- yes, Gail King. Thank you. Uh, she was interviewing Tim Tyson, Timothy Tyson, who wrote the blood of Emmett Till. He's a historian. And she was also highly impacted by the fact that he wrote, he made it a point to write in the book Emmett's height, size, uh, his personality, just finally getting to know the real boy instead of just associating him only with, um, obviously it's important, but with the photo, things like that, I feel make people's empathy come out when they, know about someone's personality and can relate that to someone who they care for, you know? Yeah. You know, he was so full of life and we focus so much on his death. Like we forget the fact that there was 14 years of life there. And when you hear it put into context and like you talk about how um, he had a nickname and how jovial he was, and you know, the stutter, like it just really, it turns that snapshot And now to me, it makes it a movie. Like Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the journey of them and I'm like, I'm seeing a boy that is, you know, full of life that likes to put smiles on people's faces from Chicago in Mississippi, two different dynamics, right? Fish out of water, some would say. Fish out of water maybe makes people want to laugh a little bit more, you know? So 
Um, I, but even in the crime, like that just doesn't sound like a 14 year old boy. That doesn't sound like something a 14 year old boy would do. So when I hear the, the nuances of the complaint, uh, against him that started this whole thing, I, it just, I'm like, that doesn't fit. I was just going to say, yeah, no, it's so it's funny at how, how early on black people learn about the, the talk that we spoke about earlier. And so for a lot of black folks, like you can't even quantify how it would make sense that they would say that this young 14 year old black male would act like that when it's like, if you're from Chicago, so I moved to New Orleans from Kansas City and my mom was in tears, just similar story, right? Like guy from the suburbs moving down south, she knows the full story, um, which would have been no different then where it's like, hey, I know his mom prepped him for the South, especially Mississippi at the time. So the idea that he <laughs> that he would go down there acting loose in in money Mississippi, you know, is just crazy. Unless he was crazy, which it doesn't seem like that was a thing. And yeah. in that book, Tim was one of the first people to actually interview Carolyn. I have to wonder if I'm sure it helped that he was white. He's a white man, so she was willing to talk to him and, you know, tell her side of the story finally. And she admitted that all Emmett did was whistle. The rest was not true. He did not even speak to her, didn't touch her. All he did was whistle. And she wasn't scared because, as dad said, she was getting a gun, you know, and I know she didn't want to tell her husband, but um, I don't know. <laughs> He was 14. I don't know. It's just sad that she even thought to make a big thing about, you know what I mean? Oh, it's really funny that you bring that up because I also feel like uh, something else that I'm sure T-Bone's mother and my mother, like both of our moms probably shared with us the power that you have if you are white. So growing up in the suburbs and dating interracially and my wife is uh, white and so when I think about the lessons learned, my mom told me early on that, you know, any woman scorned that is white that you date or, you know, even if it's something just, you know, basic, whatever, there's a high likelihood that she could say that you did anything and you could wind up in jail. And that also kind of is a part of that uh, growing up black experience where it's like, man, you really have to you really have to know somebody before you cross certain boundaries because of the constructs that we live under. Because all somebody has to do, especially in a suburb of any major city that does not have a, a, a big minority population, you're going to run into that same jury, you know? Yeah. Herman, do you have any other, uh, any other experiences from when you did live in the South, uh, you said, in college? Sure. Uh, it was uh, after college. And it was, uh, yeah, so this is the interesting thing about my experience in New Orleans. So New Orleans is different than like the panhandle of Florida or North Louisiana or anywhere in between New Orleans and Jackson. So like, it's different, but it's, I. whenever I moved back to Kansas City, I just, I found it so much more racist in the Midwest because the one thing that you'll get down South is they've, Southerners have been around black people for a very long time in a lot of different constructs. And when you go to states like Missouri that just don't have strong black populations, it's just way worse here than it is down there. Now, they're going to categorize you down there, but but you're one of the good ones and we're going to treat you fine and we're going to talk to you and it's not going to be a big deal. Whereas in the Midwest, it's like, we are going to act kind to you, but we would never hire you in a million years. And it's like that hidden, that hidden yeah. racism, I think, has such a bigger impact on African-Americans than the South. And I know that might sound weird, but, you know, the South uh, 50, 60 years ago versus today, I think the South has actually tried to do somewhat a lot to try to break some of those racial boundaries. Don't get it twisted. There are places in the South I would never venture to, <laughs> you know, with my blended family. <laughs> But there's also places in Missouri I would not venture to in the same uh, same way. Something interesting I saw in um, an episode of 60 Minutes I watched. I don't remember, Dad, if you mentioned this at all, but supposedly there were Black men involved in the lynching. And um, 
Emmett's uncle said that there was a black man on the porch when Bryant and Millam abducted Emmett. And he also saw presumably Carolyn in the car, but she was never even tried for her role in the crime. I'm guessing that the black man on the porch was told to come with them. You know, I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. So much in the same way that black people fought for the South in the civil war, like what are your options? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you're, you're either going to do what I want you to do, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, because the outcome could be death versus you. I mean, it's a big choice to stand there and be like, I'm going to do what's right. And I'm willing to die for that tonight at two o'clock in the morning. Like that's a pretty big choice to make. So it doesn't take much to move people to, to take certain actions, especially when they have no rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had read that Milam went and, and got two black men who worked for him to come with him and to look for Emmett and to help identify him. I don't recall there being any allegations that they actually participated in the beating. But I think it's it's pretty well established there were there were some other people who knew what was happening. I think what Herman said is true. I mean, sometimes you either go along or, or you get a bullet back then. So was it Mose who heard the lynching going on or who was that? No, was- that was, that was, uh, that was one of the men who was walking by, I think. Okay. Well, on this, on this episode of 60 minutes, there was, um, a man working in a barn. I think it was on Millam's property. Uh, I will have to fact check this, but he heard Emmett screaming and he heard the beating. And then one of the two men, I think Millam again, but I, I will need to check this, came back and said, did you hear anything? And he, of course, said no. And then when the 60 Minutes anchor asked him, why did you say no? You did hear something. He said, if a white man comes to you covered in blood with something in his hand, what are you going to say? Yeah, I would say no. Yeah, they're they're in um they're in an atmosphere where they don't have much of a chance. Right. So you can turn your back on the person who's putting food on your table, but you can guarantee that there's going to be somebody coming from around the corner who will avenge whatever you've done. Um, so they're in a very difficult spot. I don't know that I believe that how they acted was the right way, but I definitely understand it from a logical standpoint that, you know, there's way more white people than black people down there and they have a lot more power and they might have a long life to live and it could get real short if you say the wrong things or you do the wrong things. And, um, that's a choice that they had to make. And that's, um, it's unfortunate, but that's what it is. And logically, I understand it, uh, although um, it came with great consequence. Yeah. And just to, to go. So it's no different than like the street code today. Like I didn't say anything. I don't know anything because the outcome. So if you if you know somebody killed somebody like I, you know, that I don't want to be any part of that. And, right. you know, especially if, you know, the killer is probably not going to get in trouble for it. It's like. I mean, that, yeah, it just, what do you do? I think that's a key point. You know, the killer is not going to get in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was obviously a lot of influence that came from this case, as we've talked about throughout. Um, I just wanted to list some of them all at once so that we can see just how much influence this case did have on the civil rights movement. The NAACP asked Mamie Till to tour the country and relay her son's life, death, and the trial. And this was one of the most successful fundraising campaigns conducted by the NAACP. Journalist Louis Lomack acknowledges Till's death to be the start of what he terms the Negro Revolt. Scholar Cleonora Hudson-Weems characterizes Till as a sacrificial lamb for civil rights. The NAACP operative Ames e. Moore considers till the start of the civil rights movement, at least in Mississippi. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. held a rally for Till that Rosa Parks attended, and soon after was when she refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger. She later said, I thought of Emmett Till and I just couldn't go back. The Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott was inspired in the wake of this, as well as the 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina sit in at Woolworth's lunch counter. While Like we've said, how horrible it is that this 
innocent 14 year old boy had to be the sacrifice. It did cause a lot of people to wake up and see the injustice that happens in this great air quotes country that we live in. So, and I think while in some areas, I guess we're making progress, um, you know, electing the first black and South Asian descent woman vice president who will be inaugurated when this um, goes up. So claps. Uh, (laughs) There is still a long way to go for for all of this as well. Yeah. Um, You you call his, um, his death a sacrificial lamb and a lot. And I, I mean, I think he is, but I think that Sometimes we all have ideas and sometimes we have, you know, initiatives and we struggle to find that starting point. And when you have something that strikes a match like this does, you, you have to grab that momentum. Um, that has got to be a very gut-wrenching thing for her to go and travel all across the United States spreading that story because it's got to be like reopening a wound over and over again. But at the same time, it's just necessary because there had to be change and there's something had to be done. And without this incident and the visuals that go along with it, you just don't get the traction that you get with what her efforts were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the NAACP, which was, you know, the national um, association for the advancement of colored people, that was the outlet. That's all you had. And that's all we had back then. Um, and so they had to take on that crusade. I'm glad that they did because, you know, we have so far to go, but man, we have came a long way at the same time. Mm-hmm. And just to add to that. So I also, it's just interesting to me that you had all that traction, all that movement in the sixties, and it's almost like it fizzled out. And for the people whose beliefs were not impacted and did not change, the interesting thing is that they found new ways of doing the exact same thing is where you see the police brutality conversation in the same way that it happened then with a public execution of black unarmed youth or men in the streets of our nation. And it's just in the same way they get off. So if you want to kill black people, be a cop. If you don't want to go to jail, or if you don't want to be brought up on like manslaughter or murder charges, because maybe it'll go down as manslaughter. So when you look at the volumes of a crime like that, I and I'd have to look at the data, but I'm like, I don't think it's that much different. So, you know, you think about George Floyd and the reason why George Floyd sparked all of the protests it was really around everybody, everybody seeing it in the same way that everybody saw Emmett Till. And in the same way, you got an even broader reaction from not just this nation, but the entire world. And so that kind of gives me hope because Emmett Till's story kind of had, I'm not going to say it fizzled out, right? But it's like, and I don't want to say we need those, but the big moments do move the mark. Big moments impact people. And even if it's just 5% of people that re-realize how horrible things are, hopefully they will stay on board with, with moving to a better place. What advice do you guys have for um, white people who want to help move the needle and, um, you know, help help the country be less, you know, unjust? Uh, all right, I'll start. Uh, so I think the number one thing. So a lot of a lot of white people think that black people are asking for certain things, and yes, while that's true. The first thing is understanding and empathy, because if you can empathize with what people are going through, then I think you're a lot more willing to feel some of that pain and just see what's happening. And if every white person could get another white person that might be very much uh, opposed to things or not understand, if you just teach them that same empathy, that's what could move the mark. Mm -hmm. And then we might get to a better place. And that is just a core base level, not very hard thing to do. Yeah, I'm a big believer in empathy. And I am a very empathetic person. And just putting yourself in the shoes of someone you don't share an experience with and feeling what that might feel like if it happened to you can oh my God. have a huge impact. Yeah. So like George Floyd, I don't think he's that much older than we are. And I'm like, do you know what? Like I cannot imagine being so fearful that I, I'm screaming out for my mother who has passed. Not mine, but in his instance, I'm like, 
a grown man screaming out for his mother. I'm like, that just, I can't get. Yeah. Yeah. So for, this is a, this is a great question because, you know, we get it, you know, quite frequently. The biggest thing I can think of is you need to, I would tell any white person to challenge yourself. If you're not challenging yourself already to just get to know people who are not um, in your normal demographics, like, because once you start doing that, once you start being more inclusive in your own personal life, then you can start to look at things in the true American perspective, because America is a diverse nation, right? It's not in our little segments or fragments. So black, white, or indifferent, we can't stay in those different little segregated pockets and expect to make overall overwhelming change. Like you have to challenge yourself and say that you're going to either get to know or get involved or get some understanding of perspectives from a different from a different culture, a different socioeconomic status, a different gender or race, right? Like you need to go make those that, that commitment. Mm-hmm. And then you need to make your, I think you need to make your um, world, you know, look how you make, you want it to look, right? So we want America to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. Right. So it takes a little bit of courage to make these kind of commitments. Um, and you will find that, that that there are things in this world, different biases that we all have that really just need to be challenged. And the only way to challenge, is, challenge those biases is to gain a greater understanding. So when Herman talks about empathy and being empathetic and seeing it from other person's perspective, you really just can't do that by just saying, oh, OK, like I'm just going to be. Um, I'm just going to be a better human being. Like I'm, I feel your struggle. No, you need to get to know people and be a human. I mean, I think it's what it comes down to. It's just being human, right? Like just not judging somebody by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, like Dr. King would want us to do, um, on the hills of his birthday. Um, a lot of those lessons reign supreme. And I think that that's one good thing. Like he said, black people aren't asking for anything special. We're not asking for 40 acres and a mule or any kind of reparations. We're just simply wanting to be at the, we want a universal standard, right? And just as women want a universal standard, just as Mexicans or Latinos want, or Hispanic people want a universal standard. And that's what we're just asking. Unfortunately, in a lot of our law enforcement encounters, um, we get met with more force because they're fearful of us. And it really comes from a fear based on unconscious bias or just flat out bias or a lack of understanding. And those are the things that you need to challenge at the root of it. And I, I do want to add one last thing to go with that. I think that people also need to understand what their world looks like if if everything was just their view, right? So like this, we'll take white supremacy. So they have this worldview of this all white utopia And it's just like, okay, well, if you were all of a certain uh, race in a certain place, like, is that really what you want? Like, would you really want to live in a world where there's just you multiplied by however many people? Like, that's not an exciting place. And if you can think about that, maybe people are like, oh, I would love nothing more than there just to be this society full of people just like me. But my guess is if you really internalize that, it's like, oh, well, then I would have no creativity. I would have nobody to to argue with to grow in any kind of capacity, and it's like those internal things that people need to to understand. Like you know what, it is good that I can argue with Travis or I can argue with whoever because we both learn and grow. Hopefully, like this podcast will do to your listeners. Yeah, but I think Herman that there's a lot of people out there who would love to just be uh, in an environment that's just inclusive of people like themselves, and I think that that's an ego thing a little bit, right? Because yeah. They are comfortable in their ideologies and therefore they feel like, you know, they'll be higher on the status. The, the bigger the, the, bigger the uh, population of people in my world, maybe the less I stand out or the less I'm unique or the less I'm powerful. Um, and that's kind of the, one of the things that happens with inclusion, right? You get more people involved and maybe I don't have as much power. Yeah. Challenges to take the inclusive nature of people Take the take the ideas and take the suggestions and take the experiences and use that to propel yourself to make you even more uh, special, you know. And that's what I think is the greatest opportunity here. Is like don't look at an inclusion or don't look at diversity as a threat. 
use it as a competitive advantage and use it right, to right. use it to expand your horizons and then you have more to bring to the table and that's just me speaking to America as a whole and not the small minority that likes to stay in their box but <laughs> yeah and just to that yeah i think that to that point we a lot of people have this win lose mentality and there're just so many areas of our lives and world where like if everybody was focused on a win win thing for everybody a win-win strategy that can be achieved. So, and the outcome would be better for all. So just because I'm doing well, I don't want to push somebody else down. And maybe that's a place where people could kind of try to get their, their mentalities towards. Yes. Well, this was really great. Thank you guys for joining us today and for bringing your thoughts and perspectives on the case and everything. Dad, do you have any any closing words? Well, I just again, I want to say uh, say thank you to Travis and Herman. It's been a wonderful experience and uh, helped me grow. So I appreciate that. And, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. This has been an absolutely fantastic time. Thank you so much. Yes, yes, a lot of fun. Thank Thanks. you, guys. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joachim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 